Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and I'm joined by my co-hosts Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis for the Empire and Deep State series. This is a joint production of American Exception, their podcast, and also Geopolitical Economy Report. And we're going through chronologically through the book written by Aaron, which is American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. And we are we're all right now on the JFK administration. We're on part six going through the JFK administration. And we've talked about pretty much everything involving his foreign policy and even his domestic policy leading up to 1962 is where we are right now. So we've talked about Vietnam, Laos, we've talked about uh, Indonesia and many other issues. And today we're going to be focusing on Cuba. We've already dealt with the Bay of Pigs invasion and the aftermath. And now we're going to be looking more into Operation Mongoose leading into the uh, nuclear crisis. So, Aaron, can you talk about how we, we left off recently with a discussion of Bay of Pigs? Can you talk about how the aftermath of the failure of Bay of Pigs led to Operation Mongoose? Well, with Operation Mongoose, you had a, a period of time after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, where the administration was chastened. They needed to negotiate the return of these hostages that had been captured on the beaches of uh, Cuba in a humiliating way. But it's not like they were going to suddenly mellow out or the American national security state was going to mellow out about communism uh, and communism in Cuba. And so they uh, start setting about making plans, making plans. Oh, you know, they, they've got to you build this huge national security state and they got to do stuff. And so Cuba right there is a big priority, especially of the national security state. And it, with the Cold War mentality, it was kind of pre uh, a foregone conclusion that Kennedy was going to continue anti-Castro operations uh, after even after the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Um, so in November of 1961, Bay Pigs happens in April, and there's a lot of planning and jockeying for about like how these things are going to be done. November 1961, Kennedy aide Richard Goodwin uh, writes to JFK recommending a command operation that would be conducted from an even higher level than the CIA. And uh, this guy Goodwin is interesting because he is a, a, a Kennedy type of liberal, um, and he's married to Doris Kearns Goodwin. He died not that long ago. And uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin is like this aggressively uh, normie historian, establishment friendly liberal historian who like goes on the Daily Show and stuff like that. But Richard Richard uh, Goodwin himself was after the he was one of the people who was the most um, vocal about criticizing the Warren Commission and so on about the Kennedy assassinations. He kind of even went a little crazy and was kind of hiding out and collecting guns and stuff to try to protect himself because they thought they were going to kill him, too. So. <laughs> It's interesting. And he has a guy who met Che. And uh, I, as I recall from Brothers, the David Talbot book, he actually had a, a weird kind of admiration or towards Castro and Che uh, in a way that was even even as he was, you know, being an American statesman and so on. So he's an interesting guy. He and he but he was the person who's like sort of spearheading this. And uh, he they create this group. JFK later at the end of the month in November 1961 creates this Cuba oriented group um, it's called like the special group and a, and a command operation to sort of run this whole thing. And it becomes the basic directive for what evolves into Operation Mongoose. OK, now the order also specifies that 
uh, our man here, which you can see, um, it is Edward Lansdale. So this it, this order goes out on November 30th that the, uh, uh, the, the, they're going to set up this new project and it's going to be headed by General Edward Lansdale uh, acting as chief of operations. Okay, now Ed Lansdale is an infamous covert operator. He's a, a guy who was very close to Dulles. Dulles was his main patron, uh, was instrumental in putting Magsaysay in the Philippines, in putting Diem in in South Vietnam. Uh, and at, right after World War II, he discovered, uh, helped to discover and, and, and obtain for the U.S. a massive amount of Japanese loot that was used for all sorts of nefarious purposes later. Um, and so he's a guy who's very much like a, a an ad, a part of the deep state, the American deep state, very close to Dulles, has a military rank, but is but is known as uh, a person uh, connected to the CIA. And uh, among other things, we'll come back to this, but like uh, he planned, among other strange operations, uh, this infamous operation, uh, a memo called um, <laughs> Illumination by Submarine that proposed firing um, star shells from a submarine to illuminate the Havana area late on November 2nd, which is All Souls Day, and to have uh, this preceded by some rumor mongering about Jesus coming to Earth to sweep away, or coming to Cuba to sweep away Castro. And um, it, this, this was all to prepare for, supposedly, they would, they would think Jesus was coming, basically, that Jesus was coming to, uh, and then they would rise up and overthrow Castro. This is on the 15th of October. So we'll come back to this, but remember that date that he sends this. Um, but the, the, the result is Operation Mong, Edward Lansdale selected to run this operation and they're off and running. Uh, Lansdale had felt that the CIA's, you know, initial steps post Bay of Pigs were too weak and not as ambitious. So they, uh, they focused too much on arms, armed raids rather than like, counter-revolution. He thought you could really mobilize the population if you were clever enough to rise up. Um, and he wanted to use the CIA's boats for these infiltration missions and for building these uh, different networks and resistance groups in Cuba. And he wanted to, to throw everything at the Cuban regime, the, the underworld of organized crime, the church, uh, women's groups, labor groups, students, and other groups. And this was his, his very ambitious plan. He just, you know, believed that they should just do everything they could to get rid of Cuba. He was all, all on board for this. So there's this special group uh, that, that's headed by RFK, uh, and he's supposed to be supervising it. And in, um, in January, they are, he, they're tasked with having these plans ready for February, uh, by February 15th, February 20th. Lansdale does submit this plan, and it divides Mongoose into six phases, these guerrilla operate it would last until october 1962 a fateful thing and these guerrilla operations would start around august so it would basically be organizing all for this and the event and eventually by october you have the final phase with open revolt and then operation mongoose would sweep away castro so it's this escalation ladder with like your intelligence gathering and planning and then more and more you know uh, strenuous actions so they this use like all these methods of like clandestine headquarters for people, uh, work slowdowns, sabotage operations. So the special group thought that this was uh, a good start. And RFK told Lansdale the next day uh, that this is the highest priority of the United States. Okay. Uh, the operations were 
involving like landing craft entry uh, that were used in the Bay of Pigs to like be able to to help facilitate these operations. They were given new like corporate cover, so they slap a new United Fruit flag on them or something like that. Uh, this base in Miami, which you see here, uh, is set up JM Wave, and it's the on U.S. soil, um, and it's the biggest base on U.S. soil. The CIA is not supposed to operate on in the u.s but they they have officers in different cities in the u.s to do things like debrief foreign travelers supposedly and other things of course they end up doing more with these guys but that's just what the cia does and um lansdale arranges for bill harvey to um or i don't know if it's lansdale but however it ends up william harvey in, is becomes uh, the chief of jm wave and uh or, or, or and he or, or he oversees this he has a huge role in mongoose and eventually he he taps shackley to be the head of jm wave so it's like these are key characters in cia histories lansdale uh william harvey and ted shackley shackley has a big role in jm wave he's the guy who previously w tried to organize the zr rifle to kill uh castro and um he's involved in all of these operations so it's a big thing with 600 cia officers 5,000 cia contractors and they had this big navy as well so one of their actually sort of successful missions was this team cobra cobra infiltration of uh the pinar del rio province and this involved getting 100 agents you know ac into the country effectively uh which is successful from their point of view but it's not gonna really change the balance of power in cuba so uh, this was a problem of mongoose, as you'll see, it was kind of ineffective. Uh, June 1962, another spy team goes into the Oriente province, and then they leave. Um, they, they get recalled on June 12th, uh, and by August, the rest of them are recalled that were sent in. And uh, Escalante, the Cuban intelligence chief, thought of this as an, att an attempt to set up a guerrilla force. And um, it, the reports... He reports that the CIA uh, brought basically enough weapons for 5,000 partisans, if it could be. The question is, could they ever even get 5,000 partisans to uh, pick up those weapons? And probably that they never got to that point. Well, we've talked a lot so far about how JFK pushed back against these operations. So let's turn back to the JFK administration how did they deal with the the ambitions and then the limitations of these operations? So these were set up to be, you know, to, Kennedy is trying to walk a fine line here, in my estimation, of like needing to satisfy people that he's like doing something that he's not giving up on Cuba. Uh, that he's not going to stop fighting against communism and so on. Uh, but Lansdale's plan, uh, the attempts, the, the, he was deemed too ambitious that he wasn't wouldn't be able to do it. So JFK sits with the special group in March, has them revise the plan, um, and was satisfied with it. Uh, but they they didn't like this. Lansdale, Harvey, and Shackley especially deplored the amount of um, attention to detail and micromanaging from the high command. But I think for good reason, they wanted to keep the CIA on a pretty short leash because of what had happened with the Bay of Pigs. You know, Kennedy did not really trust the CIA. So you could say that, and people have, that, that RFK was personally really obsessed with Cuba personally. I'm not sure how much I really believe that because his actions also make sense in terms of uh, putting someone in charge of it who could make sure that it doesn't um, get out of control 
and that but that RFK also could not really evince the attitude that yeah you know this is all not you know uh, semi serious so it's it's knowing Kennedy and the way he handled other things you can't take it at face value he's a person who used a lot of deception I would argue uh, and he used his brother as well in different ways sometimes to sort of be the bad cop I think um, which we'll come back to later um, so they are wanting to satisfy these Cuban exile groups too. They meet with uh, McGeorge Bundy, who's the national security advisor, and they are happy that the U.S. is backing them and happy that they are receiving dollars, but they're unhappy with a lack of action that might conceivably you know, give them what they consider to be their country back. Uh, so in March 1962, this gets some of these, they kind of get to the, the heart of the matter here, which is like, how can you... <laughs> How can you actually invade this island uh, in a way that it, that would be accepted as legitimate by anyone? So Lansdale asked the Joint Chiefs for a description of pretexts for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. And this guy, uh, Brigadier General William Craig, produces a list. And then Lyman Lemnitzer, who's running the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he, he promotes this. Uh, among them is Operation Dirty Trick, or, or sort of in this same time period and same general constellation of op plans and operations. You have Operation Dirty Trick. Uh, this is, Craig had earlier recommended that if John Glenn, the astronaut who later became a senator, if his Mercury orbit failed, or Mercury orbital failed, you know, I think Mercury is the name of the ship, right? Or the, the vessel and it's supposed to go around the Earth. Well, if they failed to do this with their little spaceship, you know, if they get if they if it messes up somehow, they should manufacture evidence to blame the Cubans, blame Cuban electronic interference. So if you imagine something like the Challenger disaster, 1987, we'll imagine something like that happening in the 60s. But then the Cuba gets framed for it. OK, that's basically what they proposed. But they came up with a lot of other suggestions, too. Uh, and these are are notorious now as Operation Northwoods. And these are suggested by. Lyman Limnitzer, who was a, a kind of a psychotic person, uh, but he blended in in that milieu because they all were. So he didn't even probably stand out in that regard. Strange Lovian is the proper word, right? <laughs> I mean, there are so many of those guys, and we'll talk about Dr. Strange Love later. But the main character in, or the main bad guy who sets off Doomsday is, is, uh, is basically uh, very close to Thomas Powers, who was one of the main people uh, in the military at this time period. So Operation Northwoods suggests that if they're going to go into Cuba, they're going to need to remember the Maine incident because having the Maine, parking it in Havana Harbor, when the Spanish said, please don't do this here because if something bad happens to your ship, you know, it could you could blame it on us. We don't want you to come here. Well, the ship blows up and then later you get the Spanish-American War. And uh, it was it was later determined that, oh, it wasn't sabotage. It was a boiler. Other people think they may have blown it up themselves. I'd guess that they did, but I would, you know, whatever. <laughs> we'll never we'll never know. Um, so Lemnitzer comes up with uh, and the people working under him come up with his list of plans that they could use to be able to have a pretext to go into Cuba. They involved one of them was sinking a boatload of Cuban refugees on route to Florida and blame the uh, Cuban government stage plane hijacks of American planes and blame Cubans. Uh, another one was to stage a, uh, have an airline full of potentially college students or something right on holiday. And then you, you blow it up and you blame the Cubans for it. 
Another one was an incident which would make it appear that uh, communist Cuban MiGs destroyed a U.S. Air Force aircraft over international waters in an unprovoked attack. I mean, and George Bush sorted some, trotted some of these kind of things out uh, during the Iraq war. He said, maybe we could paint a plane up in the U.N. colors and then shoot it down and then say the Iraqis did it, right, or something to that effect. So these guys never stop with this stuff. Um, also, a series of well-coordinated incidents in and around Guantanamo to give a genuine appearance of being done by hostile Cuban forces. This is another plan, which the U.S. occupation of, Guada of uh, Guantanamo is totally illegitimate anyway. It was part of the Spanish-American War, and the lease should have expired by now, but they just stay there. They're just camped there because they want it. So they, uh, this, there's a, a March 13th meeting, Lyman Lemnitzer with McNamara. David Talbot writes about this in Brothers. There's no record of this uh, about how Mac McNamara responded to all of these things. Uh, but uh, the plan, codenamed Operation Northwoods, it never got higher approval. When Talbot asked McNamara about Northwoods, McNamara said, I have absolutely zero recollection of it, but I sure as hell would have rejected it. I, I really can't believe that anyone was proposing such provocative acts in Miami. How stupid. So this is from McNamara. And uh, after this, three days later, Lemnitzer gets summoned by JFK to discuss the Cuba strategy. And this is attended by some other people like uh, McCone, who's the CIA director, Bundy, who's the national security advisor, Ed Lansdale, Max Taylor, who's another uh, high-ranking general. And Lansdale is... Uh, you know, doing his normal spiel about improving conditions for popular revolts, yada, yada. Uh, and he added that once the glorious anti-Castro revolution begins, we must be ready to intervene with U.S. forces if necessary. So Kennedy, you know, this provokes Kennedy. Uh, and because he wasn't happy about being sandbagged into a, the military response in Cuba, and he backed away from that uh, during the Bay of Pigs. And so he asks him to clarify. He said, you're not proposing that that I authorize a U.S. military intervention. OK, and Taylor and the others jump in to say no. OK, but Lemnitzer, on the other hand, uh, can't he can't help himself. He jumps in to try to promote uh, and push for Operation Northwoods again. Uh, and he, he didn't go into so many details here, the worst ones, but he does offer all of them. He, he informed Kennedy that the Joint Chiefs had plans for creating plausible pretexts to use force against Cuba, uh, being either attacks on U.S. aircraft or a Cuban action in Latin America that they could retaliate for. Kennedy was not amused by this. He um, gives Lemnitzer a pretty angry stare and said bluntly that we are not discussing the use of U.S. military force. Uh, and he icily added that Lemnitzer might find he did not have enough divisions to fight in Cuba if the Soviets responded to his Caribbean gambit by going to war in Berlin or elsewhere. So this Berlin situation, in a way, is is useful to Kennedy because he is um, he he's able to point to Soviet actions that must be take counteractions that would be taken into account. So on the one hand, the vulnerability of Cuba of Berlin. West Berlin could be seen as a, you know, a problem for them. But from Kennedy's perspective, this was perhaps good because it gave him something to argue against the Hawks for. So um, even though the president tried to rebuff this, uh, Lemnitzer persists in this campaign for war in Cuba. Um, he convinces all these people, uh, the people in the tank, which is what they, they called the JCS room, that um, they should really try to push more for this. 
They hammer out a memo to McNamara insisting that the Cuban problem be solved in the near future. Uh, and uh, that couldn't be accomplished by waiting around for Ed Lansdale's, you know, fairy tale visions for a popular uprising and that there was only one way to get it done. Uh, the Joint Chiefs, this is a, a quote, the Joint Chiefs of Staff recommend that a national policy of early military intervention in Cuba be adopted by the United States. So they're just pushing for outright war. Uh, and the result of this for Limnitzer is um, after a National Security Council meeting in June, the president takes Limnitzer aside and tells him he wants to send him to Europe to become NATO's new Supreme Allied commander. And so Kennedy replaces Limnitzer uh, with the more agreeable Max Taylor, who is a strange character also, but not as overtly belligerent as Limnitzer. And Limnitzer gets sent to run NATO, which maybe seems like a shrewd move on Kennedy's part, but NATO is also where Gladio is located, and some of those assets may have been used in the Kennedy assassination, so maybe it wasn't the best move. But the result is Kennedy is just trying to rebuff these guys, and he does in terms of launching another Bay of Pigs type operation or a, or a attack on Cuba with a phony pretext. Uh, by July of uh, 1962, they're reviewing this operation, and it's the biggest CIA operation in a communist country, this mongoose business, but there's little to show for it. Uh, there are 19 of these maritime missions were aborted. There were only four supply caches that were placed on the island. Only one 1,500-pound supply uh, mission was established, and Lansdale felt that time was running out. In August of 62, Lansdale had assembled this new contingency plan. By the end of, for the end of, uh, uh, by the end of July, in August of 1962, they're pre presenting it hoping for it to be successful. It assumes an open revolt in Cuba and an eventual U.S. decision for military intervention. But um, it's it, it wasn't it, like if this was sort of like a LARP. They weren't really being authorized to do any of this. It's more of like a contingency plan for if they were given more operation to do crazier things than Kennedy would ever have wanted to do. So um, this... They, they even talk about liquidating Fidel Castro at some points. This gets raised by McNamara, but there's nothing that's written about what actually gets decided on this. So they're mostly in a holding pattern. Uh, the, the secret war people are in a holding pattern that Kennedy has put them in uh, as the, in the summer of 1962. So Aaron, you know at this point that JFK is trying to put the brakes on this and trying to de-escalate, but of course the CIA wants to continue to escalate they want blood and uh the other so-called secret warriors in the cia are planning other operations so what's going on behind the scenes well you have plans and plans and contingency plans and so on uh william harvey comes up with this plan b plus aka stepped up course b or alternate course b and this calls for upping the cia personnel to over 600 uh, launching five sub submarine missions a month, more infiltration and sabotage. In August of uh, August 23rd, you have the issuance of NSAM 181, which basically prefigures what becomes the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it uh, also provides that Mongoose Plan B should be developed with all possible speed. So what I mean is that these extra operations end up kind of provoking the Cuban Missile Crisis or making it you know, I mean, the, the explanation for why it happens is kind of clear, as you'll see when there was why Khrushchev would have done what he did. Not that it made much sense, but 
we'll see. You'll see. It, it basically is like a provocation or a series of provocations. All of these, the fact that these operations continue are the, really the reason for the Cuban Missile Crisis. August 24, you have this raid from the DRE, which is the uh, Revolutionary Student Directorate, basically, uh, the group that Oswald had some connections with, uh, CIA uh, group. And the plan was because there were these Soviet and Czechoslovakian advisors at a hotel in Havana, they were going to have a raid on Friday night uh, because the advisors would party at this hotel. And uh, a DRE guy bought a camera at a pawn shop so he could record this. Six exiles got on a speedboat with uh, some machine guns and a 20 millimeter cannon and a recoilless rifle. And then they launched like a sort of cannon fusillade or whatever for uh, seven minutes or so. And immediately there was a radio station in New York, which uh, took uh, let the DRE take credit for this. And uh, this was sort of a scandal because it hadn't been approved, uh, you know, explicitly by the CIA in the White House. And so the case officer for the DRE gets moved to another assignment. This might have been when they brought Joannides in, uh, I would guess, but I didn't I couldn't find out if that was the exact detail. Uh, Alpha 66, another group of Cuban exiles, that's a, more or less a terrorist group, gets formed in the aftermath of this. And there's all these debates in September about the operations um, that they could use here. What, what would actually be the appropriate thing to do to take more aggressive steps <clears throat> against Cuba? So um, one of them that involved basically poisoning the Cuban sugar crop with chemical agents. It was so bad that this State Department lawyer, Abram Chase, wrote a memo on this where he objects pretty strenuously to these efforts to sabotage the Cuban sugar crop. So I have an excerpt here, and he says, I have no confidence in the scientific judgment that the substance is harmless. We know from recent experience that drugs which have been extensively tested for human consumption turn out to have side effects when widely administered. I cannot believe that this substance has had such extensive testing. The described effects are such as to suggest that the impact would not be uniform across a wide sample of the population. A good way to put this issue in perspective is to ask how you would feel about the same thing happening to yourself or your family if the action had been taken by the other side. So this is where you do have these forces in the Kennedy administration trying to restrain uh, these guys as best they can. So, you know, this is one where they got them to stop this, but you still had other things going on and, and different, you know, terrible operations that the CIA is carrying out against Cuba going on all the time. So Aaron, this takes us into October, 1962 in the lead up to the missile crisis. And what was Kennedy's position on, on all of this? That was, I mean, clearly a lot of this was not under his control and he's trying just to being able to manage everything, which is as, as president, you would assume that the president would be in charge of these kinds of things. But in the case of JFK, we see that's not that's not the case. So what, what was he doing at the time? Well, the president can't micromanage all of these things. And there's a lot going on. I mean, we haven't even talked about like the Berlin crisis. And I don't know that I'm going to get into it that much. But it, there's a series of crises going on under Kennedy. You've got the issue of Vietnam. You've got the issue, the crisis in Congo got uh indonesia is a is a big hot spot for the president to deal with i mean it's really an, a, a very eventful time that he spends in office even though he's not there very long um and so he's he in october of 1962 we know of course what's coming because we, it's, it's in the past 
but they're just kind of rolling along with this Cuban operation. And in October, October 4th, there's a special group meeting and RF, uh, RFK says JFK is uh, worried about these meager re results from Mongoose. Um, Harvey then sends Lansdale an options and target list and proposes striking maritime targets for the first time, mining ports, uh, you know, sort of like they did with Nicaragua in the 80s. Uh, hit, hit and run strikes, maybe against Soviet uh, block ships, uh, a target list of 33 facilities in Cuba from public works to broadcast communications to port facilities that, that could potentially cripple the Cuban economy. Uh, one official sends the special group a, a paper proposing eight potential covert attacks, including a grenade strike on the Chinese embassy in Havana. So they're sending all of these things that are more aggressive than what Kennedy has wanted in the past. And, you know, this is part of uh, the way that it was it had been run under Kennedy. He had these areas, especially Cuba and Vietnam, where he was needing to have a policy uh, against these in these important areas. And yet a lot of what he does is rebuffing the military from doing you know things that are even crazier. Uh, but this all really becomes Mm, it's all gets overshadowed the whole all the the shenanigans in cuba get overshadowed by events that begin on october the 14th um this is from the national security archive which is a pretty good resource for a lot of these historical documents i think that they are kind of i, I don't think they take a, the best line on kennedy or some of the other more explosive aspects of the national security state but they're useful a useful resource um and they write about this saying um an Air Force U-2 high-altitude reconnaissance plane took photographs of Soviet medium and intermediate-range missile sites under construction in Cuba. This intelligence ushered in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Suddenly, not only would the intelligence community be drawn off to support President Kennedy's decision-making in the crisis, but American officials took note of a massive Russian military buildup in Cuba, not just missiles, but aircraft and thousands of troops. That put a different light on planned mongoose raids. Much later, historians would learn the Soviet troops numbered more than 40,000. And this begins the Cuban Missile Crisis. So back in April of this year, on, on Khrushchev's side of it, the thinking is Cuba is a quote-unquote unsinkable aircraft carrier. So there's no way the Americans can run it out of there. They also haven't gone in because they refuse to invade. So it's a good spot to, to position yourself if you're looking for more of a confrontation or, or in his mind, a deterrence. Um, but the, the thinking is sort of see how they like it. In the same way that there are, uh, as we'll get to, nukes sitting right across the border in Turkey, his idea is, uh, the quote is, how about putting one of our hedgehogs down the Americans' trousers? Um, and so that's that's really the, the thinking behind it. But what is the, the series of events that leads the Soviets and the Cubans to a, a, attempt something that's as risky and as much of a provocation of what we know and what they knew to be a hot-headed, uh, uh, sort of military hawk filled government that would push JFK to the limit and, and nearly did cause Armageddon. But what, what brought them to that point to move Soviet nukes onto Cuban soil? Well, we have all these <clears throat> CIA operations that, you know, that are undertaken at this time that are small, but enough to be alarming to the Cubans because they've already seen the Bay of Pigs and they probably realize how close they were to being destroyed because it's just the U.S. is a much bigger country and Cuba couldn't really defend itself against an all-out U.S. invasion. It would just be impossible. 
I mean, the only thing that really restrains the U.S. here is that it's so nakedly criminal and illegitimate. And Kennedy realized that uh, as it happened, because he had he had been told that if the Bay of Pigs happened, the operation took place, the pe Cuban people would rise up and somehow over help to contribute to overthrowing this government. He didn't want to be the person who just went in there, you know, Genghis Khan style and took over Cuba. So these in that context, all the CIA raids and mongoose operations are worrying because do they portend something much bigger? Because they were that's that's the way the Cubans saw it. They thought they were laying the groundwork for taking the, the island back. So there's that aspect of it. Also, in January of that year of 1962, the U.S. had twisted enough arms, you know, in American diplomatic style to get these uh, Latin American countries to suspend Cuban membership to the OAS. The OAS is basically like a Latin America, like a, a Western hemisphere uh, entity. That's really a U.S. It's basically a U.S. Uh, it's like, it's like NATO, except in, in Latin America. I mean, it's basically a U.S. dominated entity. Um, so they kick them out of the OAS in April. Um, the, the Cubans are kicked out of the OAS. In April, 40,000 U.S. troops take place in this two-week exercise in the Caribbean, uh, complete with an invasion of an island. In May, there's two smaller similar exercises. In October, the U.S. announces Operation Ortsac, which is Castro spelled backwards. And this is uh, involves 7,500 Marines on this mock Caribbean invasion, uh, complete with a government overthrow. Scheduled to begin on October 15th, but then canceled because the missile silos were spotted on the 14th. Um, so these are these are all events that provoked the, the Soviet decision to put these missiles and, and for Castro to welcome this, uh, you know, the missiles being put in, in on Cuba. And for the Cuban side, I think it's Che who said it. It might have been Castro, but he says along the lines to your point about invasion, the expectation is what we're going to we're going to get hit one way or another. And I, I think he says something along the lines of what does it matter to us if we die by nuclear bombing or conventional bombing? Because in the end, uh, if you're facing that down, uh, I, I think the thinking was, well, then we'll take you down with us. And, you know, people can throw stones at that if they want. But I, I it's hard to uh, it's hard to disregard how real the threat was that we were unconcerned with, you know, Florida becoming nuclear wasteland. And if it meant the rest of the country, once the Soviet nukes showed up, we didn't, at least when I say we, the Joint Chiefs and company really did not care. They 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 really paid no mind or, or you know, as we'll get to, the numbers that they were willing to give up were pretty much nothing to them. A hundred million dead is, eh, you know, 30 mil. What, what's the big deal here? Um, and, and, and Che and Castro, I think understood that. And, and you can maybe question their decision-making there of, of making that kind of threat. But again, the idea is, well, you know, if we're dead either way, we might as well try something. Yeah. And of course, I'm sure you'll be talking in a, in a bit here about the extreme exaggeration of Soviet nuclear capabilities. I mean, the U S had exponentially more nuclear technology and more nukes and um i also i mean I, we've talked about this before I, I don't even like the term cuban missile crisis because uh, what's not mentioned often conveniently is that the u.s nato put nuclear weapons in turkey but it's not called the turkish missile crisis right um in 
Cuba, it's known simply as the crisis de octubre, the October crisis. Um, so you've, you've spelled the beginning, Aaron, of how we led to October 1962 and the beginning of this crisis. Um, can, you, can you just now go chronologically, just briefly explain how it developed? Because again, when, when I learned about this in public school in the US, when it's frequently taught, there's such a facile understanding as if, you know, the Soviet Union was just threatening the U.S. in its so-called backyard in scare quotes. But obviously, um, we know that it was directly because of U.S. threats. The U.S. was the aggressor here and Cuba was responding to those threats. Right. I mean, they were Castro and I generally, you know, ha have a some kind of admiration for the tenacity of Castro and, and Che. Um, and in this case, I think that they were, they, it was reckless what they did, you know, not that they weren't faced with a terrible enemy, but I think that this was reckless and, and not, and a bit myopic uh, throughout this whole thing. And, and the same goes for, for Khrushchev. That's not to exonerate the U.S. war machine, which I think is the most dangerous entity that has ever <laughs> existed, perhaps, uh, in the, in the, in human history, but this is the, it, knowing that means that that they have to be approached with some sort of degree of uh, forbearance and, and such. So October, the chronology of all this, there's the beginning, which I just mentioned, October 14, U2 spy plane uh, sees these um, installations, takes lots of photos of all of these countryside photo, uh, photos of uh, Cuban countryside with missile installations being built. October 15th. CIA analysts spot these launchers, missiles, transport trucks that indicate the Soviets are building sites to launch SS-4 medium-range ballistic missiles capable of delivering one megaton warheads to U.S. targets. But keep in mind, as Ben alluded to earlier, that there is a huge disparity. Even though Kennedy ran on this idea of a missile gap, shortly after he took office, he learned that the, there, was, there was a missile gap, but it was a, and it was a huge one, but that it was in the favor of the U.S., he didn't know that going into the debate, he'd been misled by this by uh, people. I think people in the CIA. Maybe it was Alan Dulles himself, because he did give Kennedy some intelligence before those debates. In actuality, there the big disparity was in the U.S. favor. Uh, a little chart that I put together here with uh, estimates of the actual capabilities: Soviets had less than ten intercontinental ballistic missiles. U.S. had over uh, two thousand at least uh, ICBMs and bombers. So this is delivery for all of these nukes. Soviets had 300. That's incredible. Yeah. 10 versus 2000. 10 versus 2000. And that the Soviets are portrayed as the aggressors. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, and the, in terms of just the actual nuclear weapons and bombs, 300 to 500 warheads for the Soviets and for the U S 5,000 nuclear bombs. So the, the, between the ICBMs and the bombers, uh, the bombers could be equipped with multiple nuclear bombs uh, and, and be sent out, as is seen in the film Dr. Strangelove. So the reason for the Soviets putting bombs in Cuba is for deterrence. It wasn't an act of aggression against the United States. It was deterrence in order to deter a U.S. first strike or a Cuban invasion. Uh, and this was logical given what the U.S. had been doing. Um, up until this point, encircling the Soviet Union with military bases, you know, building up NATO on its borders. I mean, this is considered the fact that the U.S. considered Cuba to, to be such a threat 
I mean, those same reasons should be applied to understand why the Soviets considered the U.S. such a threat uh, with the actions of the U.S. after World War II, including a year after the Soviets or the, the U.S. nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki gratuitously. Um, the, 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 a year later in 1946, they tell the Soviets that if they don't pull out of Iran, they're going to nuke them too. So this is the Soviets are very aware of the nuclear issue. They're not they're not just ignorant and cavalier about it. They're just trying to come up with a way to balance uh, power against this nuclear this country that has already nuked somebody before when it didn't have to and threatened to nuke the Soviets also when the U.S. territory was not threatened. So to look at it from the Soviets and the Cubans point of view, the U.S. would have been a really horrifying uh, opponent to be dealing with. And this was part of the way that they did it. Uh, by putting these missiles there, which ended up not being the way to go about it, um, given you know the way things unfolded. So October 16, uh, Kennedy meets informally, I think at first with XCOM. XCOM is uh, the executive committee of the National Security Council. And uh, this is a picture of them. They convene officially on the 22nd, but this is like they, they start to they start having these meetings even earlier than that. And it included people that were in the National Security Council, plus other advisors like Kenny O'Donnell and uh, people like Dean Acheson, who's I consider one of the like one of the top figures of the American deep state during this time. You know, maybe the top guy, depending on how you want to conceive of it. Uh, he was a part of it. Uh, Paul Nitza was there also, and a number of advisors. So this is a big group that's put together to try to uh, talk about this. JFK is given a uh you know one of the some of the briefing notes show the threat posed by these missiles and these are uh, showing where the areas that could potentially be struck by missiles in cuba by with these soviet medium range ballistic missiles so you can see the threat they can't really reach new york but they could reach <clears throat> perhaps washington <clears throat> other cities in the south of the u.s miami of course is very close uh new orleans dallas um so this is perceived as a as a destabilization of the Western Hemisphere. Remember, the U.S. has the Monroe Doctrine, which says nobody can come into the Western Hemisphere. It's the U.S. divine right. Okay, and this so this is an affront to that. That's how they that's how these guys see it, which is of course an imperialist mindset. But in response to this, McNamara presents JFK with three options. You can either go for diplomacy to get rid of this. You can have a naval quarantine in Cuba, or an air attack to destroy the missile, missile sites, which might kill thousands of Soviet personnel and trigger a Soviet counterattack against, say, Berlin. Uh, Kennedy rejects the attack and instead goes for quarantine, which is a euphemism. Okay, It's to buy time to negotiate a missile withdrawal, and they call it a quarantine because a blockade is an act of war, which is exactly what it was. But if you, to call it a quarantine, it, the hope is that this gives people enough of a fig leaf to say to not be saying, oh, well, we're at war then. OK, so this was the the reason for the euphemism. On October 22nd, Kennedy goes on television, delivers this dramatic 18 minute uh, address, and he talks about the unmistakable evidence of the missile threat. And he announces the U.S. will prevent the ships from reaching Cuba uh, and demands that the Soviets withdraw missiles. So he has this he announces this quarantine. Okay, the Soviet ships will not be allowed to uh, resupply Cuba. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to the, to the Soviet Union delivers a letter uh, from JFK 
Khrushchev where Kennedy wrote that the one thing that has most concerned me has been the possibility that your government would not correctly understand the will and determination of the United States in any given situation, since I have not assumed that you or any other sane man would in this nuclear age deliberately plunge the world into war, which is crystal clear, no country could win and which could only result in catastrophic consequences to the whole world, including the aggressor. Now, so Kennedy, this is an interesting, you try to parse the diplomatic language, the will and determination of the United States in any given situation. I think that this is, can be read as perhaps saying there's this whole, the state, the state is here. And this is very relevant to how these things are going to play. Tread carefully. Nobody can win this. Uh, that night, William Harvey of the CIA, um, he dispatches uh, 10 teams to Cuba. And he's the, this, the, he's the guy who wanted to uh, assassinate Castro, was friendly with all the mob people. It's just a, a, a an alcoholic and a, a lunatic, pretty much a, you know, a um, murder, a, a murderous fellow, um, a homicidal maniac uh, in a suit. He had a law degree and worked for the CIA, but he was pretty much a, a fanatic. And uh, RFK finds out about him sending these teams to Cuba and he flips out. And he only finds out by luck because one of the Cubans uh, contacted him. So he wrote about this. One of the fellows who was going got in touch with me and said, we don't mind going, but we want to make sure that we're going because you think it's worthwhile. So RFK is like, what? You're, you're trying to, you know, infiltrate Cuba. So he orders the mission recalled. Harvey says three of the teams could not be recalled. And uh, this makes Robert Kennedy also very angry. And he uh, says, well, on whose authority did you do this? And Harvey said, we planned it because the military wanted it done. And I asked the military and they never heard of it. Okay. That's how Robert Kennedy described it later. Said Har Harvey said, we planned it. Military told me to do it. But then RFK goes to the military and says, but you guys did this. Did you do this? Did you do this? Nobody did it. So RFK summons Bill Harvey and says, I've got two minutes to hear your answer. And you can try to explain this. Uh, two minutes later, Harvey is still stammering and Kennedy, Robert Kennedy leaves the room. Later, CIA director John McCone talks to CIA officer Ray Klein and he says, Harvey has destroyed himself today. His usefulness has ended. Now, the other people at the CIA also are in trouble for their not failing to uh, identify this problem beforehand. McCone berates this guy named Sherman Kent for failing to predict the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Kent later would say, quote, I've just been made a charter member of the Bleeding Asshole Society, but Bill Harvey's the president. Okay, because Bill Harvey did worse than just like not figuring out what was going on. He like almost exacerbated the situation, maybe started a nuclear war. The result of this is, was what JFK likes to do, Harvey ends up being sent to Rome. Okay, Rome where, you know, the Propaganda Due Lodge is, for example. So he can be, he can work with all sorts of mafiosi and other intelligence agencies and other spooky entities and ex-Nazis and fascists and so on. Uh, so a lot of people believe William Harvey was involved later in the Kennedy assassination. He seems to have, he told someone in the CIA that he was in Dallas in November of, 20, of 1963. His travel vouchers are still withheld uh, from that time period. Uh, he's also the guy, William Harvey is, who was the legal counsel for Bob's Merrill, the publisher in Indianapolis, when they essentially disappeared Peter's uh, brilliant book, The War Conspiracy, which also had the best and first uh, long explanation of the heroin 
uh, shenanigans with Air America. Uh, and as a result, Peter's book kind of gets swept uh, under the rug. And then this other book by Al McCoy gets all this publicity and he it, it becomes a bestseller and he ends up a tenure professor. So William Harvey is uh, just Mr. Dirty Tricks. And uh, this, this is a, of a piece with that. So on October 23rd, uh, you have basically some like exchanges of letters and diplomacy between Kennedy and Khrushchev. This is actually a picture here from the Vienna summit, but it's just to you know, show that they're communicating. Uh, Khrushchev writes to JFK and he rebuffs the demand to, re to remove the missiles. Soviet leader insists are intended solely for defensive purposes, which is, to be fair, completely reasonable because there's no way that the Soviets could have had a first strike capability, even with the missiles in Cuba. Uh, the U.S. would still be able to respond. The Soviets would know they would be destroyed. Kennedy writes back to Khrushchev saying that he's the one who started the crisis by secretly sending the missiles. Uh, Adlai Stevenson goes to the U.N. and briefs the U.N. Security Council about everything that's going on. U.S. ships are now uh, pretty well encircling Cuba. Soviet submarines enter the, Cuba, the Caribbean as well. Uh, and this they move in such a way as to suggest they may try to, try to break any blockade. Uh, and but Soviet freighters carrying military supplies stop basically in their tracks due to the blockade. So they don't engage with the U.S. They actually accept the, you know, illegal blockade around Cuba. So this is this international law aspect is important. And I'll come back to it. But uh, October 24th, Khrushchev sends a letter to JFK accusing JFK of threatening the Soviet Union. Uh, and he says, you are no longer appealing to reason, but wish to intimidate us. October 25th. Soviet arms freighters turn around, go back to Europe, which is better than them engaging if you're trying to avoid a war. Uh, an oil tanker called the Bucharest approaches the quarantine zone heading for Cuba. Uh, two warships prepare to intercept it, uh, which could have led to war. But Kennedy decides to let the Bucharest through the quarantine because it isn't carrying any contraband. So Kennedy bends a little here to avoid a bigger conflict. October 26th. Castro sends a letter to Khrushchev urging him to launch a nuclear first strike <laughs> against the U.S., uh, which Khrushchev happily disregards. This is not this wasn't Castro's best move uh, ever. And thankfully, Khrushchev rebuffed him on this one. Uh, instead, Khrushchev sends a letter to JFK, appeals to JFK to work with him to deescalate the conflict and ensure that they don't doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war. Um, October 27th is a huge day in all of this, okay? Uh, and this is known by some people as uh, Black Saturday, October 27, 1962. And there's a lot of things, crazy things that happen on this day. Uh, so most notably, perhaps, uh, for, for from the position of the decision makers in Washington, you have the U-2 <clears throat> plane, which gets shot down over Cuba piloted by Major Rudolph Anderson, who um, gets hit by this, the Cubans and uh, basically just he, he dies and they have the U-2 there. Paul Nitza, the guy that wrote NSC-68, says they fired the first shot. Uh, JFK says, well, we're in an entirely new ballgame now. JFK correctly concludes, however, that Khrushchev had not given the order to shoot down the U-2, uh, but the incident uh, leads both leaders to realize the situation is spiraling dangerously out of control. 
Uh, the same day, Nikita Khrushchev sends another letter to JFK demanding that the U.S. withdraw missiles from Turkey as part of the deal. JFK responds by offering the a no Cuban invasion pledge. Uh, additionally, on this day, you have the, I could call it the Arkhipov incident or whatever, but there was a submarine uh, that was being under attack from with depth charges from a USS, a U.S. Uh, vessel, and they were armed with a nuclear torpedo uh, and were authorized to use it if war broke out. And they were, they, the depth charges had knocked out power on the submarine for a lot of it for hours, and they were really miserable getting banged around on there. And then they get hit with something bigger. And they all they come within a hair's width of of trying to uh, of trying to launch the missile, but this guy Vasily Arkhipov talks them out of it, talks the commander out of out of launching this. He's the political officer. He later gets appointed to uh, or promoted to being an admiral years later in the Soviet Union, and he's really a hero in this whole saga. Uh, to, in terms of like, I mean, they would have it would have been reasonable given their orders to launch the nuclear warhead, but they didn't, and as a result, were spared nuclear war. Um, there's additionally, besides the submarine issue and the, the narrowly avoiding nuclear war that way and the U-2 flight, which gets, which gets shot down over Cuba, you also had a U-2 that had accidentally or not accidentally gone into Soviet airspace. It got, um, it starts to be pursued by Soviet, uh, fighters and then it retreats to Alaska. But this is another thing that could have led to nuclear war on that day. Uh, so these are all very, very dramatic things that are happening on October 27th, 1962. And then perhaps most dramatically, you have this meeting with between RFK and the Soviet ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin. And RFK uh, says that the U.S. already planned to remove missiles from Turkey, but they couldn't say so publicly. So I'm going to read a little bit of what um, Kennedy how this conversation is described. This comes from uh, Khrushchev's memoirs. So the Cuban crisis, Robert Kennedy began, continues to quickly worsen. We've just received a report that an unnamed American, sorry, an unarmed American plane was shot down while carrying out a reconnaissance flight over Cuba. The military is demanding that the president arm such planes and respond to fire with fire. The USA government will have to do this. I interrupted Robert Kennedy and asked him what right American planes had to fly over Cuba at all, crudely violating its sovereignty and accepting international norms and accepted international norms. Because so this is important. He's saying, how, how, can, how do they have the right to even fly over Cuba? This is violating international law and the sovereignty of Cuba. Okay. How would the U.S. have reacted if foreign planes appeared over its territory? Uh, we have a resolution of the Organization of American States that gives us the right to such overflights, Robert Kennedy quickly replied. Okay, now this is notable. Uh, I told him that the Soviet Union, like all peace-loving countries, resolutely rejects such a right or, to be more exact, this kind of true lawlessness when people who don't like the social political situation in a country try to impose their will on it, a small state where the people themselves established and maintained their system. The OAS resolution is a direct violation of the UN Charter, I added, and you as the Attorney General of the USA, the highest American legal entity, should certainly know that. Uh, Robert Kennedy said he realized that we had different approaches to these problems, and it was not likely that we could convince each other. But now the matter is not in these differences, since time is of the essence. I want, Robert Kennedy stressed, to lay out the current alarming situation the way the President sees it. He wants uh, Khrushchev to know this. This is the thrust of the situation now. 
So what I would note here is that the argument made by De Bruyne is uh, you can't even argue with it. This and this shows you the nature of the U.S. presidency after World War II that it is essentially lawless. I mean, what he's pointing to here. Robert Kennedy saying, well, we have a resolution of the Organization of American States that gives us the right to such overflights. But there's nothing in the UN Charter that says it can be overruled. These issues of like war and the protection of national sovereignty can be overruled by whatever organization you randomly want to create that authorizes you, that, that then authorizes you to do whatever you want. This is uh, absurd. And the the position that Khrushchev and Dobrynin articulate, this is in Khrushchev's memoir, but it's going from Dobrynin's account of the events. I mean, the, but the Dobrynin position of that being a violation of international law is, is so, uh, that argument is just airtight. It's so straightforward. And uh, he even he adds, you as the attorney general, the highest American legal entity should certainly know that. I mean, this is exactly it. This is the exception in action. And this is not even something that gets mentioned in when you discuss this in history classes and so on. They almost never mention that. Yeah, the the, the U.S. was actually by international law totally in the wrong uh, here. Like, and the U.S. is basically a global dictatorship. And even the best U.S. presidents during this time, which I think you could say Kennedy was. Kennedy's the one guy who really, after World War II, who tried to end uh, the the U. I'd say by wanting to end the Cold War, Kennedy was really wanting to end the U.S. war on the on all of the world. And even he feels so constrained by the actual the trappings of the institution and the crime syndicate that is the the American state during this time period that the idea of like respecting international law is not even doesn't enter into the equation uh, even at this time. So this is this is really remarkable. Um, so the now the most dramatic part of all this is uh, of the whole meeting between De Bruyne and RFK is this part here. Um, RFK says to De Bruyne, the president is in a grave situation and does not know how to get out of it. We are under very severe stress. In fact, we are under pressure from our military to use force against Cuba. Probably at this very moment, the president is sitting down to write a message to Chairman Khrushchev. We want to ask you, Mr. DeBrennan, to pass President Kennedy's message to Chairman Khrushchev through unofficial channels. President Kennedy implores Chairman Khrushchev to accept his offer and to take into consideration the peculiarities of the American system. Even though the president himself is very much against starting a war over Cuba, an irreversible chain of events could occur against his will. That is why the president is appealing directly to Chairman Khrushchev for his help in liquidating this conflict. If the situation continues much longer, the president is not sure that the military will not overthrow him and seize power. The American army could get out of control. And that this is essentially the RFK is telling him the military could, could overthrow the president if he doesn't go along with this. Now, you could say that this is, you know, an attempt to uh, in absentia cast the military as a bad cop, you know, in this equation. But knowing that Kennedy also tried to get the his his friend John Frankenheimer to make the movie Seven Days in May about a military coup, I have to believe that this is of a piece with that, and uh, it's it's really remarkable. The result is happily that on the October twenty eighth, Khrushchev concedes, writes an open letter to Kennedy saying the Soviet missiles will be dismantled and removed from Cuba. Uh, the White House um, tries to spin this as a result of JFK's toughness in the face of Soviet aggression. 
in reality, Peter Kornbluh of the National Security Archive writes, I think this pretty much sums it up. The resolution of the crisis uh, owed to the president's commitment to negotiate and find common ground in a dangerous nuclear world. And also, you know, Khrushchev, by accepting this offer, which publicly they couldn't announce the Turkey part of it. So it involved a political, you know, some political, de a political defeat in a sense for Khrushchev. But Khrushchev had the sense to recognize that preservation of the human race was more important. Uh, and this is this is key. So Khrushchev, Arkhipov, Robert Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, uh, Robert McNamara. These are people who were, I think, deserve all the, the, the credit here. Kennedy, the Kennedys went against really all of the advisors in XCOM. They were all advocating steps that would have led to nuclear war. The aftermath of this for Kennedy is the Joint Chiefs are very angry. Here he is meeting with some of these uh, Air Force people later, officers, uh, including LeMay, who I believe is the guy sitting closest to him. LeMay was really outraged by this. He was like, this is the worst thing ever. We should just go in now and knock them all out. So he really wanted to just go back in and uh, basically attack Cuba even after this. Uh, th so he knew that th they were not happy with this outcome. And likewise, Khrushchev's military brass were very unhappy with him. And Kennedy and Khrushchev both essentially get removed within in very short order after this, uh, both of them by their their own deep states, if you if you will, or establishments, uh, unless you believe that Oswald killed JFK, which not many people do. Um, now, historically, uh, Robert Kennedy's memoir is good on this subject, and it later gets made into a, a movie, more or less, adapted into a movie. But Robert Kennedy uh, did not put the Turkish missiles angle into his book, even though he obviously knew about it because he negotiated that with De Bruyne. But this was considered, uh, this is very telling because this is a step, a concession that they made to save people from nuclear war. Most people don't want to die in nuclear fire. And yet, for political reasons, they deemed it something that should be kept secret. Uh, and th that was their calculation at the time, which really, if you stop and think about it, tells you a lot about the, the insanity of the U.S. system and what the Kennedys were trying to deal with. Uh, this gets made into a movie called 13 Days, which takes some liberties, uh, the most but is pretty good in many respects. So the main departure that the film took with dramatic license, and I think it was justified, was to make the focus on Kevin Costner's character, who's Kenny O'Donnell, uh, who was a advisor to Kennedy. And he was present at the XCOM meetings and such, uh, but he was more of a friend and, and a, an advisor and aide to Kennedy, uh, rather than someone who took a big role in actually doing much of what resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis. But that was a small thing. The more interesting thing about the film is that it applied to the Pentagon or appealed to the Pentagon for some assistance. The Pentagon will give people military equipment to use in their movies, but there's a catch, and that is that the Pentagon has to approve the script. So they gave them the script, and the Pentagon said, well, we don't, we don't like this. You're making the military brass seem like psychopaths. I mean, so can you change this? Why'd you, you know, we don't know why you wrote this, but this isn't good. And they said, well, these are actually transcripts of uh, the recordings that from Kennedy's White House tapes of what they were saying, specifically um, Curtis LeMay saying, this is worse than a, this is worse than Munich. You know, this is terrible. This is appeasement, Mr. President. You know, you're in a terrible mess here. Okay. And like Kennedy basically goading Kennedy into like starting a nuclear war or trying to, uh, and then it was all totally accurate. And the military said, well, we're not going to pay you. We're not going to let you use our equipment uh, if you're going to present the military this way, <laughs> in this accurate way. 
And so they had to use uh, different solutions to try to uh, make the movie. And they, they did to their credit, a lot of, um, you know, good uh, innovation and improvisation on the part of these guys. So the film ends up being not bad as a Hollywood movie. Uh, and it captures the insanity of the whole of the whole thing.